Point uh, was the largest coal plant in New England, putting out 1,600 megawatts. That was called a base loader. That meant that that plant was operating all of the time, 24 hours a day. I actually live um, less than a mile from the oldest plant that is now closed. Could never open the windows on the south side of my house. I never had a clothesline. But those are inconveniences um, that we lived with because we had the lowest taxes around and the best schools. And so I looked at it as, um, I guess, the cost of having a good living and having a nice place to live. The voice you just heard belongs to State Representative Patricia Haddad, who provides the narrative backbone for a documentary about America's love affair with energy. In that excerpt, Haddad recalls what it was like living in Somerset, Massachusetts, next to a coal-fired power plant and the environmental and financial trade-offs she was willing to accept. The documentary traces the country's haphazard energy evolution from one president to the next and from one crisis to the next, all the while using Haddad and Somerset as the laboratory where those decisions play out, often with devastating personal and environmental consequences. I'm Bruce Mole of Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined today on the podcast by Kiki Gaucher, the writer, director, and producer of this powerful documentary series called Empowered. Thank you for joining us, Kiki. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us why you called your series Empowered and why you decided to make it. Um, I call it Empowered because it was exactly how I felt personally. I have been in, involved in environmental education through different nonprofits, and um, I've been focused so much on trying to get the message out that we need to stop our use of fossil fuels and that the planet was in trouble. And I was feeling like I wasn't seeing a lot of action happening around me. So I was feeling a little bit, not a little bit, a, a lot um, worried and depressed and felt like nothing was happening. When I did this deep dive and met all of these people over the course of two years, I felt this excitement for the future for the first time. I mean, I really thought, wow, things are going to be better in five years and even better than that in 10 years. Because I met the people that are doing the work and I realized we have the tools. So let's talk a little bit about Somerset, the focus of this episode. Uh, I've spent a lot of time writing about the community's recent struggle to regain its footing after the closure of one of the region's largest coal-fired power plants. And that's something you focus on a great deal. But I love the way you place that struggle in a broad historical context, tracing the community's ups and downs to the erratic energy policies of our country. It just puts it in a historical context that you often don't get. Um, and I, I, I love the way you told the story using a local situation to sort of illustrate the national you know, changes that are going on. Um, and I want you to talk a little bit about how you came to Somerset. What drew you there? And because you you obviously grasped it, you know, the significance of it. But how did you find little Somerset sort of out of the way in Massachusetts? It was I was just very lucky. I was meeting I was interested in policy for that for one of my episodes and because I had already done so much research 
um, on technology. So I knew what was happening in the, in, in the uh, universities when it came when it comes to technology. And that was exciting. But I wanted to know the next thing. I knew this, this um, energy revolution had to be a triangle, which was technology, policy, and finance. So I was looking at all three of those things in the triangle. And that brought me to Kelly Sims Gallagher at Tufts, who was at the Fletcher School, which I believe you know well. Right. Um, and she was telling me about, well, you know, I said, I really would like to know more about offshore wind. That's something that I don't have covered. I don't understand when I'm from California. I know a lot about solar. Um, and she said, well, we have this, um, um, the blade testing center. You should go take a look at it, Mass CEC. And so I started to look into what Mass CEC was, which is brilliant. And I went to the testing center and Jennifer Delazio, who's the CEO there said, well, you really should talk to Pat Haddad if you want to know the story of, of this uh, offshore wind in Massachusetts. And so I, I pursued Pat and I went down and met her in her local town library. And she just told me everything. And I fell in love with her when I met her because she's so uh, open and honest. And her personal arc is really interesting to me because she first thing she did is she said, I'm the I was the queen of coal and now I'm the witch of wind. Uh, she, she is proud to have changed her stance as a, a politician, as a leader to adapt to the reality of what was happening. So she was all for that power plant because it, it was the backbone of her town. It was all the finances um, and she fought even to try to keep it going when environmental problems were obvious. But when she saw the writing on the wall and that the price of coal was just too high now to compete with, with gas, she immediately turned and was willing to say, what, what's next or beyond that? What is the best thing for the future for my town? And she went all the way into this renewable uh, offshore wind. So I love that about her because that's what we need in leadership is people that will adapt what's happening right now, not be stuck in a certain position. This, um, uh, that's a very astute observation. And, and, but what I always find is that she's so plain spoken as well. That, exactly. Um, I mean, I've sort of known her in the context of a big fight they've had recently over this piece of land called Brayton Point. But you sort of take her back, uh, way back in time, and get her to walk through many crises the town has gone through. Um, and I, I got to say, I, I'm, I know I'm uh, heaping praise on you, but some of the footage you had, um, particularly when the cooling towers at the coal plant came down, I've seen them where they're these sort of long shots of the towers, but you had it right sort of between from in between a couple of houses so that you just felt like you were there in the community as this huge influence in the town crushes to the ground. Um, that footage, was it just available? Did you have- No, no, I had four cameras. We flew in from California just, to, just for the implosion. And I was on the boat with Pat. Uh, you know, there were 
uh, different people were on a, a boat, mostly the people that were from offshore wind or the people that owned Brayton Point um, were on a boat. So I was able to see her reaction, um, but I had a drone and I had people on other points around um, the town. And we had come out a couple of days ahead and scouted that. And I loved that shot right between, uh, and it was so close. I mean, those people, their backyard is Brayton Point. Yeah, it, it was a very powerful shot. Um, and so that brings up an interesting point. I, you've been, you were working on, how long did it take you to do just that episode? Because for those who haven't seen it yet, there's a point where you bring it up to a certain point and then say, and seven months later, and then you pick it up again. Um, how long were you working on that? I've been at like three years because I, I had COVID get in the way for one thing. So I couldn't come back and reshoot. And then I really wanted to see something happen at Brayton Point. And I, I actually have been thinking lately that this episode should really be a feature in the same way that like the feature film, The Factory, because there's more of the story that I wasn't able to tell in 35 minutes. And there, there were more personalities that I met in town too showing their relationship to the plant, their relationship to this area. And the area is just so full of history. If you really are only focused on energy, even it is the epicenter of, it's a microcosm for the, all of America because it started with the whaling. You know, that is where we had our oil for, for lanterns. Right. Uh, and going all the way through to Edison was down there to, to start the electricity, um, in the region. And then Brayton Point being the largest uh, base loader for all of New England. I mean, it was the boss. And, you know, so, and hopefully they are gonna be the boss when it comes to offshore wind. They're certainly having the cables come right into that same place, which is great because they're going to use that infrastructure of the, um, the grid tie that's already there. Right. So another, um key point in the episode that I, I was not aware of, and I thought it was a great find, was came in September 2002. You interviewed, well, it wasn't, you didn't interview him then, I don't think, but Phil Calaruso, the marine biologist with the EPA, uh, he, he, it's at a point where the environmental movement is picking up some steam, and he has this quote in your series, we were underwater for 50 minutes. This is off of Brayton Point and in that area in Mount Hope Bay and did not see a fish. Um, and I was like, whoa, that is just amazing. Talking about the impact of, of in that case, it's talking about the impact of release, releasing heated water into the bay uh, over and over and over again and altering the environmental landscape there. How did you find him? I found him through just poking around to the EPA. I went down, I, back, I actually had to go back and find out what happened when. So it was a lot of history and various people were helping me. So I went back to just news, looking at who was involved in the permit. And then I found various people. And through the EPA, they were really good about connecting me to Mark Stein who was the attorney who actually worked on this for 10 years and, and then Phil. And 
they were great. They were at the screening at Somerset too the other night. Um, one of the things that I had no idea about, I mean, there was a lot I didn't know about before I started this process, but I didn't realize that even when we, the EPA identifies a problem with the plant, that it could go unchanged or, or, or unaddressed for 10 years while the attorneys go back and forth, that it was all just about this legal battle. And the owners of the plant were able to keep them keep them in court for so long. In the meantime, that was 10 years after he did that dive, that that water was being damaged. So, I mean, we, our system's kind of slow. That, that blew me away. I had no idea that once they found that something was problematic, that they couldn't stop it immediately. The, the other powerful thing, as I've mentioned, you trace a historical ups and downs, if, if you will, from Nixon signing the Clean Water Act and creating the Environmental Protection Administration. And I didn't even, I didn't even know that. So that, I was embarrassed that I didn't know that. And then uh, OPEC comes along and what had been cheap oil suddenly becomes expensive oil. And this plant is sort of going along at the same time. It shifts from coal to oil back to coal, and then along comes fracked natural gas and at a very low price, and that drives the plant out of business. But I, you, you end on a positive note that offshore wind is here, but I wanted to bring you down a little downer question on that front because um, there are lawsuits against this first vineyard wind project that is gonna be off the coast and there is, uh, some of them are, uh, ex extremists are out there filing these lawsuits, I think, to block the wind farm. But at the same time, they're raising concerns about how these wind farms, and as they proliferate, proliferate what they will do uh, to right whales that are offshore and to the, the fish population and the fishing industry and so on and so forth. And is the lesson you learned doing this that no matter what, energy, you know, we consume so much and we need so much that we need many, many, many wind farms. Are you worried that you may, you could come back in 10 years and there's going to be some negative consequence of that? That we overcorrect? Over um, not really, because one of the things I found in the story, both here and also in Vermont, is that there are two different kinds of environmentalists. There are those that really want focus on carbon and energy and climate change. And then there are also the conservationists and the conservationists kind of keep pushing back and making that balance happen. Like saying, we don't want to see that in our waters. Are we, so I think that we kind of end up with this happy medium only, the only problem is right now, I feel like we need to accelerate fast and we don't have time for a long debate. And the debate in Massachusetts has been going on for years, right? It has been, yes. And how long have you been covering it? Oh, about a decade. Uh, right. So um, uh, I haven't been covering uh, Somerset that long, uh, but I've been following sort of the energy evolution of Massachusetts over this time. And, and we're a state that has basically no energy production in it. Uh, so we're at the, as they often say, we're at the end of a pipeline. Um, 
and there aren't that many pipelines. So we're often squeezed by a lot of different factors. So that's why wind is sort of very appealing here. But I, I do wonder, because each, when you look at it historically, this was what hit me, each president was sort of responding to the situations they were finding themselves in, whether OPEC or wars or this or that. And they were sort of tilting in one direction. And you're right, you sort of end up with in the middle somewhere, but it takes years and years to get to the middle as you go through these, through presidents, basically, you, you portray. And offshore wind did that, as you point out, with Trump. He put it on hold for quite a long time. And then Biden is full tilt. And you wonder what happens if, if we flip again. Um, could we take a step back? Well, we could if, if I think our, our opportunity here is that while Biden is in office, that we accelerate really quickly because just as we saw once gas fracking, gas was cheaper than any other fuel, then it wins. The cheapest is always going to win. The, the good news right now is that wind and solar are the cheapest methods for creating electricity. And what, if we get them out, we're not going to go back and take them back and say, no, we'd really rather we'd really rather pay for some coal or we'd really rather pay somebody else. And I also think this crisis that we're having right now with oil should be a wake up call. Let's go back and look at the last oil crisis. Wouldn't we be in a better position if we were self-generating? That's why I went to Denmark. Their reaction at that time of um, the energy crisis was in the 70s, was to say, well, we're just like Massachusetts, we don't make anything. So what can we make on our own property? And one of the things that offshore wind offers for Massachusetts is control of their own energy and not being reliant at the end of the pipeline or, re or reliant to some geopolitical problems happening um, elsewhere. So that once we taste self-reliance, we're not gonna say, gee, you know what, I, I drive an electric vehicle. I never say, gee, I really wish I could go pay for some gas. I love paying for gas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, do think, I, do think that's, uh, I do think that's an accurate portrayal. Um, I do wonder whether it's, you're convinced offshore wind is the cheapest alternative. Not the only, I mean, I think um, there, are, I think all of these different renewables have to work. You need several different renewables. Um, solar is the most abundant resource that we have. Um, in my first episode, I have a quote from a couple of different people. One is Vladimir Bulovic of MIT Nano saying that the, the energy that hits the earth in one hour of sunlight is equivalent to all the energy the planet uses in one year. So if, do we have enough natural resources? We do. And I think that the, re the researchers are, are going to find other ways to find ways to harvest energy that exists around us. There is energy inherent right now in the space that you're in. And that's just even the light coming from outside. It doesn't need to be big solar panel. Um, Vlad showed me a little um, solar cell that 
just captured the light that was in the room and was able to spin a little tiny turbine. So the combination of these different technologies with batteries, with fuel cells, good storage, hydro, uh, maybe um, hydro storage, all of that, with that combination, we really could succeed to be free of fossil fuels. And that's what made me really feel excited. I saw, that's the empowered. I saw how it all could connect and really work. Yeah. And, um, and then you translate again, I want to just come back to Somerset again, because um, Representative Haddad is someone who's been at this a long time, seen, seen it from all sides, and then is uh, when that, uh, you, you point out that an Italian undersea cable manufacturing facility is, is about to move into Brayton Point. And they had a, the governor and everybody had a, um, a little uh, groundbreaking or a ceremonial event to celebrate that. And she got a starring role in that. Um, and it was, it was very poignant um, looking out from, it was up on a bit of a hill and it looked out over this pretty much of a wasteland uh, right on the water, but still a wasteland with all the scrap metal, the, that caused a huge fight recently lying around. Um, it's, it's quite amazing to sort of think about what that can be in four years or what have you, if there's a manufacturing plant and interconnection place for power. It, it, is, it, it is rather exciting for this little town to, to, which has gone a bit on a roller coaster, energy roller coaster for years. I, I imagine taking over all kinds of, I mean, as I travel around the United States, the most beautiful property to me, because I grew up with a, a dad who was um, a sailor and all about the water, um, the most beautiful places on in this country are along the waterways, but that's also where we have all of our industry and that's starting to change. So something that looks like that um, littered with scrap metal and all of that, that could end up being some gorgeous, lush park in a few years. It's hard, it's hard to imagine, but you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and the same with the water. One of the things that made me excited is I asked Phil, um, you know, will that bay ever come back that we were looking at where they couldn't see a fish? And he reminded me of the work they did on Boston Harbor and how it did bring back the marine life substantially. So if we give nature a chance, back off a little bit with fighting them, with fighting nature, it, you know, it comes back. Comes back, hopefully stronger than ever. Yes, yeah, in spite of us. <laughs> um, so lastly, I, I uh, wanted to give our listeners a chance to uh, hear a little bit about Tell me a little bit about how you put this series together and, and where, where do you hope it leads so that people can tune in and watch? Because I'm sure people listening are going to want to say, oh, I want to see that. I haven't, um, I, I haven't licensed it yet, so I don't know where it's going to be airing. Um, people can follow us on our website, empoweredtheseries.com. I'm hoping, really, I wanted to find the best place 
for the audience that wants to see it. I'm, I'm hoping it's not too educational. I've been worried that it's, you know, when you, when you look at things, documentaries that are doing really well on some of the streamers like Netflix, the uh, unscripted that's doing the best are crime, real crime and kind of salacious things. And I don't know, this is not that, it's a little bit more educational. So I'm not sure where the best home is for this yet, but I'm going to find a good home. And then I am also making it available to um, schools, any kind of schools, universities, high schools, middle schools, and through Captain Planet, which is a nonprofit, I serve on the board of Captain Planet Foundation. And their focus is to really support the next generation in being stewards of the planet. And so there will be a quest, an activity and a curriculum built around Empowered to help kids get involved. Well, that's great. So you do all this work sort of up front and then have to figure out what you're gonna do with it after you finish. I know it's not conventional. But I, I was able, I wanted to do this. I, I was really wanting to go on this journey. So I was able to finance this through donations and support Captain Planet at the same time. Amazing. Well, Kiki Gaucher, thank you for joining us today. That, I, it's a great episode that I watched on Somerset and, and the first three episodes. I, I think it's a fantastic start. Can't wait till it's completed. Uh, thank you thank very much you. for joining us. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Make it a little-